Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Fly Brother Radio Show. I'm Ernest White II, storyteller and explorer. I've lived in five countries and traveled to over 70, and I'm not saying all that to say that I'm all that. I just want to give you a little motivation, some inspiration, a few tricks and tips to go off and live an amazing fly life for yourself. On this episode, I talk with Ronell Perry, explorer and entrepreneur who pursues Black-centered travel experiences throughout Latin America. Ronell is the founder of Afro Buenaventura, a travel portal inspired by communities descended from enslaved Africans that disembarked at ports throughout the Americas. Before starting a career in the corporate sector, Ronell served in the U.S. Peace Corps, where he was placed in rural communities in Paraguay and Costa Rica. We'll talk all about volunteering in Latin America, cultural pride, identity, and a whole lot more. We'll be right back with explorer and lover of Afro-Latin America, Ronell Perry, on the Fly Brother Radio Show, right after this. Welcome back to the Fly Brother Radio Show. I'm Ernest White II, and I am here with Ronell Perry, who has been traveling through the, around the world, but certainly most recently uh, in Latin America. And most, uh, I guess, he spent a lot of a lot of time in, in Latin America, haven't you? Yep, yep. That's that's where I enjoy being, and so every time I try to get, go out of the country, I make sure it's in Latin America if I can yep. help it. Okay, okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, man. Yep, thanks for having me. All right, cool. So I guess uh, when we first came across each other's you know, radar, I was living in Colombia, I believe, and that was probably maybe eight or nine years ago. Yes, that was uh, back in the day, and I used to listen to your podcast faithfully, and the thing oh, about man. it was I really enjoyed the music. I enjoyed the music on top of the, the topics, so it was... It was a really fun thing to uh, to listen to. No, oh, that's cool, man. That was I was in my lounge music days back then, <laughs> like <laughs> mid to late two thousands, which seems like yep. a lifetime ago. Um, but that's cool. I, Thank you. It was really good good times back then. Yeah, man. So you were in Paraguay at first, is that correct? If I remember right. Yeah. So um, after college, I did Peace Corps in Paraguay and Costa Rica. So I. Um, I did my time there working in rural communities, mm-hmm. specifically with a cooperative in Paraguay and then a small artisans group in the local government on an indigenous reserve in Costa Rica. Okay, so two very, very interesting and not um, common kinds of experiences, I feel like, especially for Black American travelers to Latin America. Absolutely. Um, I really hadn't had too much experience with Paraguay. I really didn't know you know, what kind of place it was, but I did my research and I went there. And the, the, the thing that I love about Paraguay is it's a really diverse um, population. And so you can see any, anywhere from uh, indigenous folks to German immigrants to Japanese immigrants, and they all like kind of form this, um, this hodgepodge of a community. And the thing about it is their they're na- they're national languages are Spanish and um, Guarani. So mm-hmm. as a Peace Corps volunteer, I had to go there, and since I already had a background in Spanish, I had to try to learn Guarani. Um, but it was a really great, great time. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, just because you know Guarani, along with well, Tupi Guarani, is the one of the, the foundational languages of the people of Brazil. Obviously, the whole yep. region of South America. 
Um, well, that's, man, that is very interesting. I don't know anything about Paraguay, quite honestly. It's one of the few Latin American countries that I haven't been to. And uh, I would definitely, I, I feel like just talking to you about it will be incredibly eye-opening for me. But first, I was yeah, going to ask... Yeah, it's an incredible place. Okay, okay. I was actually going to ask you if you could describe how you got to the Peace Corps in the first place. Like, where are you from? What were you studying in college? And what made you decide to get into the Peace Corps? Got it. So I'm from the south suburbs of Chicago. All right. And if, if I'm talking to any, if I'm talking to anyone that's not from Chicago, I just tell them I'm from South Side of Chicago. So I went. I, I grew up there. I went to school undergrad at uh, Dillard University in New Orleans. It's a small HBCU um, in New Orleans, and there I studied international business and Spanish. Nice. Um, so I had. Um, an interest in travel and other cultures. Back when I was in, in, in uh, elementary school, every summer, my sister and I took a language program not too far from Chicago in Gary, Indiana. That's where Michael Jackson's family from. Yes, so 2300 our, Jackson our Street. Aunt, exactly. My aunt was a French teacher. She'll, every year, um, there was this language program in Gary, and so some of her colleagues ran the program, and so every year we were in that program, and we got um, exposure to Russian, Japanese, Arabic, German, all these other languages. Nice. So I kind of had open eyes when I was in college about what I wanted to learn and how I wanted um, to experience the world, and that that um, included international travel. So I studied international business in Spanish. My first trip abroad was to the U.S. Virgin Islands uh, for a program of future global leaders in, in the Caribbean. And so we learned about economics, we learned about language and culture and stuff like that. And then that same year, I went to Spain. So uh, that, those are kind of like my entrances into what an international um, global citizen can be and how to make that happen in your life. And uh, so for me, it focused a lot about learning and mm -hmm. experiencing other cultures. Yeah. Nice. And so after college, I really didn't I really didn't understand what I would do. So I decided to apply to uh, Peace Corps. And I remember that in fourth grade, one of my teachers had talked to us about Peace Corps. And so I was just like, wow, I, I think I might want to do that. So I applied. Um, the process was really, really long, actually. Mm -hmm. And then I got an assignment and I went. The first assignment was Paraguay. And I had no idea, you know, anything about Paraguay, but I just decided to go. And so did you get to choose the place? You get to choose a region. So you can say if you want South America, you can choose if you want Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa or Europe or something like that. And um, it's, so it's based on your preference of where you want to go geographically and okay. also the skill set that you have. So since I had a background in Spanish, it's appropriate for me to, you know, go to South America because I could kind of hit the ground running with those language skills. OK. And your assignment then in Paraguay was what? My assignment was rural economic promoter, which basically is a person that's trained to kind of promote economic stability and development in a community. Um, so I was assigned to a cooperative and basically I was there to learn about the cooperative and how the community comes together to uh, create this economic organization where everyone can benefit. Um, the biggest challenge there is that, you know, as a newcomer to a community that's a foreigner, they're not going to, you know, really let me into the details of their business and the politics of their business. So it's kind of hard to really make an impact that way. Okay. So we kind of have these secondary projects. One of my projects was uh, teaching English. So I did that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of it, I just really 
involves getting to know the community as well as you can. And that way they start to slowly let you into those spaces where you can actually make an impact. Um, I just remember one time, I really didn't know where I was useful. But then um, there was something happening where they had to create these reports to share with the community. And I taught them how to do a SWOT analysis. So okay. that was like something that we think of as maybe really elementary as, you know, as someone who's going to college for business. But it's really useful in a community where just structuring your ideas and your thoughts and concepts to share with the community in an organization like a cooperative, that's very valuable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's the value that these core volunteers bring to communities. That's um, a lot of what I did there in Paraguay. Now, was this a paid situation? Obviously, um, I was going to say the <laughs> word volunteer kind of indicates that it isn't, but that doesn't mean you didn't get a stipend. It doesn't mean that your living situation wasn't covered Absolutely. So Peace Corps volunteers kind of do volunteer because the community where they're assigned does not pay them actively in money. Right. Um, Peace Corps does, the, the organization does give you a living stipend that's usually on um, on level with or above the community where you're living. So as a Peace Corps volunteer, usually you're probably getting paid the most in your community. Though mm-hmm. so you don't want people to be aware of that, you're supposed to live as similar to them as you can. So you are getting paid from Peace Corps. You get a stipend in the local currency. And then when you return from Peace Corps, depending on how much time you've actually served in the Peace Corps, you accrue uh, kind of this this cash payout uh, that they that they give you when you get back in the U.S. Okay, and uh, which I'm- is not which is not which is not significant. <laughs> no, it's not significant, meaning not. It's not a lot. It's not not what you would have made had you right, right. Not what you would have made had you stayed in the U.S. Is what you're saying? Absolutely. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm not sure if you mentioned it earlier. How long were you in Paraguay? I was in Paraguay for about a year. Okay, okay. And then you were like, "I'm going back to the states." No, 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 no. I went to uh, Costa Rica directly from there. No, I went back to the states for a bit, but then I was reassigned to uh, Costa Rica. Oh, okay, okay. So was it was it a choice that you made? Uh, I, not necessarily, but it was a necessary move. Okay. Okay. That's, that's cool. Yep. Uh, you were, you went with the flow, literally. Absolutely. And so in Costa Rica, then how would you describe going from one country where you had already kind of, uh, found your feet, you were ingrained, uh, ingratiated with the community, uh, then you up and moved to another spot? How would you describe, um, I guess, trying to get used to, to being in another country? Yeah, it was tough. Uh, I was excited about being in another country and working specifically with indigenous communities there. So that yeah. was a plus. Um, but I think that my time in Paraguay had really taught me about patience, about um, humans and how we are very, very similar. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, how to gain the trust of a community and how to really figure out how I can be of, of service to that community. Nice. So it kind of was... A preparation, I think, and allowed me to like not be as anxious and as egotistical about what I could offer. Mm-hmm. Be more willing to listen and chill out, um, and, and let the community decide how I could uh, be of service to them. Well, now that requires a lot of self awareness, obviously. Yes, in Peace Corps, you have a lot of time to become self aware because. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. You know, we go there thinking, I have a degree, I'm from another country, I can move around as I want, I can do as I want. But actually, these communities um, are often suspicious of, of, of outsiders or 
you know, you're just not aware of the internal politics. So a lot of the time you just have to sit back and let things happen and let people start to trust you and really build your relationships. That's one thing that I figured out that it's not really always about the professional side that you can offer, but it's often about the personal relationships that you develop and how those actually impact the community. Mm -hmm. Now, how old were you when you went to uh, Paraguay? Uh, I was about 21. Okay, so a lot of it was your own maturation into a man. <laughs> I mean, in this, I guess so. Well, certainly, yeah. I, when, I, when I left the country at like uh, even twenty five, I mean, I was still learning how to behave and move through the world as a fully fledged adult, having to take responsibility for his actions and his interactions. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you were legally. An adult, but I feel like travel, certainly in, in, in a situation where you're living in another place, is an incredible maturation process. Yes, I, I think you're right. Um, and actually, I had never like lived in my own apartment that wasn't affiliated with going to school. You know, so mm-hmm. I, I traveled abroad and lived in another community before I even experienced those things here on the U.S. soil. You know, like I had never paid rent on my own. But when right. I got to Paraguay, honestly. I actually had, that was the first time I was living in a house on my own when I was in Paraguay. The first time I was actually paying rent on my own when I was in Paraguay. So yes, it was kind of like this development into manhood. But I think also it was, you know, I always heard this concept of becoming a global citizen and being a global citizen. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the first time I was actually able to practice and live what it meant to be a global citizen. Indeed. uh, Yeah. I, I definitely think that was the case. Well, I guess, you know, certainly with all the different layers, I mean, we're coming with, you know, our own history, our own demographics, our own just many different identifiers, you know, this kind of diamond that uh, of, of identity that we bring with us. And uh, I guess in, in your case, certainly you were in a place where they, I mean, how, how many people that you came across had interacted with a, a black American from, you know, the Southern side of Chicago before. Yeah. Hardly any. You're right. Um, most, <laughs> so. most folks, most folks had the reference of Chris Tucker and, um, and Jackie Chan. So they knew Chris oh, Tucker. They, and that was boy. when Obama had first become elected. So everyone knew Obama and Chris Tucker, and Michael Jackson, like that was what I represented to them. So it was, it was really interesting. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, man, but just the, the kinds of, I mean, Chris Tucker of all people, uh, you know, a, a funny brother, but definitely not someone that I would assume you are have an automatic affinity with when you travel places. Absolutely. I think that uh, being abroad and as a black man, it helped me understand what how people perceive the U.S. and how people perceive the images of black people from the U.S. Even, you know, I think it just made me more aware of how people perceived us and what images our media is putting out into the world about us and how we are and how people can interact with us. Mm, Right. It is certainly different coming from here where we get, even if we don't get the full range of representation in the media, we at least have the visibility in our daily lives. But when we go abroad and we're seeing this very skewed sliver of images that's supposed to be that are supposed to be representative when we're overseas and there's yep. nothing to counter those images. I mean, that can be quite challenging. Moving on to Costa Rica. How long were you there for? 
I was there for about another nine months. Okay. Um, so yeah, I was I was on that. In the, I was in a place called Key to DC, which is about forty-five minutes to an hour up in the hills from San Jose. Mm. It was a an indigenous community, and in Costa Rica, they have uh, several tribes or communities around the nation. And the Wethard was the uh, community, uh, the tribe that I was uh, working with. Okay. Um, and that was really, really, really interesting experience, too. Because uh, just like, you know, I think, you know, we can say that black folks are marginalized in some ways. Here in the U.S., the indigenous people there are extremely marginalized, and it's very apparent, mm-hmm. even from the placement of their communities. Like, there's a big highway literally running through the community. They have the, they're, they're given the worst terrain to uh, live on. Um, though they have, like, government subsidies, and technically they have their own uh, sovereign kind of government, it's not really a pleasant experience, I think, from my perspective, to really live and try to thrive and be a citizen in one of those communities. It's just really difficult. And so, I mean, that just sounds heartbreaking. And obviously, it, theoretically, we know the story of indigenous people in the Americas. But at a certain point, you know, indigenous people disappear. Um, Absolutely. And so you're in a situation, or you were in a situation where you're actually seeing what has become of the original inhabitants of a particular country. That must have been, you know, I, I know you probably were trying not to always look at it as a tragic situation because, I mean, it is the, they're human, be- human beings who are not, by nature, tragic. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't see, like, you know, starvation and things like that, but I saw just this marginalization. I remember there was um, a brother-in-law of the family that I was living with. Mm-hmm. He would go to the city for work or whatever and to interview and he would never tell people that he was indigenous. He would always tell them that he lived somewhere else that was not on the reserve. So there's kind of like this assimilation that you have to to um and be involved in in order to survive as an mm. indigenous person. Passing. Um a lot of the exactly a lot of the youth don't want to live in their communities anymore because they don't even have access to a lot of the things that, you know, youth are really attracted to technology and uh social spaces and just all this modernity that uh, that they just did not have access to. So they're losing a lot of the youth. Uh, there's not many educational opportunities or places for folks to thrive in those communities. Mm. And so then what about um, the language? I mean, obviously, ones with higher levels of formal education would be speaking Spanish and possibly other languages as well. But um, was the main language of that particular community Spanish or was it an indigenous language? It was Spanish. And the thing about a lot of the, um, the indigenous, they do not even retain a lot of their cultural knowledge and inheritance. Uh, in Wetari, where I live, they did not have, they did not, they no longer spoke their native language. And a lot, and I, I saw, oh so I worked with artisans and also one of the spiritual healers in the community. So a lot of them were trying to remember and recreate this culture that they had lost. And a lot of them were making it up. Honestly, they were making it up. Uh, there was a spiritual healer on the, in the community. He gave tours to a Palenque and um, his grounds where he kind of developed this tourism attraction that kind of displayed some of the, the traditional spirituality and religious concepts. But a lot of them were making it up uh, because they had lost it. And they were, you know, for it, similar to the indigenous people here, they were forced to let go of that culture, assimilate, 
speak Spanish, to dress like a white person, all these types of things. So now they're to a place where they kind of want to regain that, but it's lost. And mm-hmm. so that was, I think, the most tragic part for me. It wasn't, you know, people who can't maybe get food or who don't have housing, but it was a loss of culture and their attempts to try to remember it. And they're also uh, faced with this loss of their youth. And the youth really don't even want to try to um, be in that fold anymore. They're more attracted to uh, the white culture outside of their community. But then at the same time, they're completely marginalized from mainstream communities and, and society there. So then you got, they're stuck in this interstitial space of being robbed of their original culture, having to make up something in the, in the interim, and then not being fully accepted as citizens of the nation. Right. All right, well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I would love you to talk about uh, Afro, Afro Buenaventura, your website, and uh, some of the other projects that you've got going on. So uh, please, guys, stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Fly Brother Radio Show. I'm here with Ronnell Perry, who has traveled extensively throughout Latin America and is passionate about the region and about Afro-Latin communities and volunteering and empowerment and self-care and many, many other aspects of travel. Um, Again, thanks a lot, sir, for being here. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure being here with you. Finally, yeah. we're like actually able to meet, even if just electronically. I think we've had several attempts at meeting in person, but That's this is true. how it came out. But uh, it's it's still a good thing, though. That's true. And I think you were in. Uh, I think we were both in New York recently, correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we tried yes. to get that to you know a, a meet up together, but you know what, man, it happens when folks are traveling and doing their thing. The the idea or the point is just to keep trying. And eventually, one yep. of these days, we will get a chance to have some mate and uh, talk the shit about, uh, shoot the shit about living in Latin America, which, you know, we were doing at the same time many, many moons ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. And w- go ahead. I remember the one time I was in Ghana for a summer, and I think you had a trip planned to Ghana. We were going to meet up, but then I think your travel, <sighs> your travel got rearranged or something. That was like way back Man, in 2012. Yes. So that. That's a very interesting story. I'll tell I'll tell the audience very briefly. So I was living in Germany at the time uh, with my former partner, and I was trying to I was trying to go to Sub-Saharan Africa. You know, I had been wanting to do it for a while. The countries I had been to up to that point were Egypt and Cape Verde, um, and definitely African countries, but not like West Africa. You know, from our, our roots. And so I was like, all right, I'm gonna make it work. Um, was in Germany, got my Ghanaian visa, even though I was not supposed to, because as a U.S. citizen, I was supposed to get that in the U.S., but they issued it to me. I had everything sorted. I was going to fly from D.C. Uh, I think I was going on a buddy pass from a friend. And so that was, you know, going to be a, a good way of paying less money to try to get to Africa. And so I got to D.C., maybe three or four hours before my flight was supposed to take off because I wanted to have dinner with some friends. We went to Ghana Cafe, had food. My friend dropped me back off at Dulles Airport and the flight had been canceled. Mm. And so 
the the guy at the front uh, at the the counter was like, "Hey man, look, we basically had an equipment issue on the flight to Frankfurt, so we needed to yank the plane that was supposed to go to Accra and put it on the Frankfurt route." Well, everybody who was who had confirmed seats were being reaccommodated. I wasn't, unfortunately. And the very next week, United dropped the route from DC to wow. Accra. And man, I was gonna couch surf. I found a couch surfing host named Ernest. So I thought it was cool <laughs> to try to write an article about like here I am in Ghana hanging out with the other Ernest, and yeah, it was it was a bummer. I had already taken like my first malaria pill, which is supposed to take like a day or two before leaving. Um, so I could feel the effects of that, and it was just crazy. I ended up like going to New York and trying to to have a few days there in the big city with a Ghana budget. Um, so yeah, that was quite an interesting experience. Um, but where else have you gone besides Latin America? Uh, I've been to Spain, been to the Virgin islands. I've been to, uh, Dominican Republic. I don't think anywhere too much outside of Latin America. I've been to Uganda. Okay. The other side, East Africa. Uh, that's about it, I think. You know, it's primarily North America, South America, and um, a little bit of Africa. So I want to do more. Um, I really want to do Brazil. You know, that's big on my list. It is um, phenomenal. You'll I'm not really it. looking. T- yeah, I'm not really looking towards uh, Europe right now. I actually just made a post because <laughs> uh, they have a security alert out for Europe, and so I was just saying, well, I'm sticking with Latin America right now. And so honestly, <laughs> that's really how. You know, I, I chase deals. Okay, okay. It could be an amazing deal. It could be there could be an amazing deal, but if it's not to a place that I want to go, I won't do it. And so that's kind of what I tell folks. You know, I'm like, you know, you can travel, but just make sure that you understand what you want to get out of it. And even if it's a great price, I won't go if I don't find something of value there. So I my mean, main focus is. <laughs> I was gonna say, man. I mean, that is definitely a you know a valid uh, travel philosophy. Though I'm actually now realizing that part of my mission is to convince you otherwise. And like when you see, doesn't have to be during this show, but when you do see a deal to a place that you never would have considered going, I want you to go, man. Like I challenge you to be like, all right, I know nothing about this place, but I got a ticket for $204. (laughs) So like I get a week in you know, Tajikistan or Mongolia or, I mean, obviously you probably won't find deals that cheap for those countries, but (laughs) still like, you know, or even Ireland Um, because I do feel like you as an intrepid expat who has, you know, done a lot of, you know, really kind of eye-opening and and, and mind-opening travel I think would probably get a lot from places that you didn't necessarily consider. But I know what you mean because you're like, I got limited time. I want to make sure I'm going to kind of enjoy where I'm going. So it's not that I don't get that. It's like when you're really hungry, do you really want to try a new restaurant (laughs) when you don't know if you're going to enjoy the food? Absolutely. You know, especially when you have like a certain chunk of money that, you know, is dedicated to going to a certain restaurant. You know, you're not just going to eat the hot dog off the middle, off, off the road, you know, side of the road because it's there and it's cheap. You know, you really want to get something, you know, with some nice condiments on it. You know, yes. Something that I... you've been wanting for a while, you know? 
<laughs> I understand. I do yeah. get it, man. I do get it. Um, but yes, yeah, so I, I'm definitely like I want you to go to Tajikistan, actually. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you started a website called Afro Buenaventura. Um, why did you name it that? What's the name from? Well, because um, everything, <laughs> everything. I, I grew up in a really Afrocentric. Uh, I think. Well, my father was really Afrocentric, so we celebrated Kwanzaa. Okay. We always went to the Black Expo. You know, we did all these things that were kind of in recognition of our Black heritage. Mm-hmm. So that's where the Afro part comes from—the recognition that you know I'm Black and I love all things Black. And recognizing and trying to figure out where it came from and okay. the value in that, in knowing that history. Yes. And the Buenaventura part came because Buenaventura is a city in uh, in Colombia, not too far from Cali. Yes. It's on the Pacific coast. Um, and so I was in Cali last November, and I picked up this little guide that was in the hostel where I was in Cali, and um, so I was reading up on places, and I was like really trying to find some folks, some some communities where there are black communities. Because I know Kali has a lot of black communities, but I was trying to figure out like where do I come in contact with them. So I read mm-hmm. up about a couple of them, and one of them was uh, Buenaventura. But yes. the thing about it was the guide said Buenaventura is an industrial port city. It is, um, you know, it's like a lot of industrial business and uh, traffic and stuff, and it's highly militarized because. It was once a main port where a lot of the drugs came into uh, the, you know, Kali or whatever. And so it said, basically, don't go there because there's nothing of interest to a t- for a tourist. So which being of, the kind of traveler. I'm go sorry. ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, which, of course, could be further from the truth. But go ahead. You, you please explain. OK, so being the kind of traveler that Peace Corps made me to be, you know, like really independent and resilient and mm-hmm. curious. Mm-hmm. I was like, well. I didn't come all the way to Cali because I wanted to necessarily follow the warnings of someone who wrote this guidebook, you know, that I think is not necessarily meant for me. So I went on a whim and I passed through. I was like, it doesn't look really, really dangerous. But I knew that that was also a launching point to go to other uh, beachside communities. And they were like, like once we got to when I went through all I saw was black folks. I was like, this is actually (laughs) exactly what I wanted. So Mm -hmm, I was happy mm -hmm. to go. So I was like, you know, this for me represents a lot of what I've seen in travel and in talk about, uh, you know, international experience that doesn't necessarily recognize or highlight black black communities. And it doesn't uh, uh, make people want to go to those black communities. So when you talk about specific places, people are like, oh, that's dangerous. Oh, there's nothing there for me. But actually, there is something there for you. So that Buenaventura was kind of when I came upon this epiphany that actually, I want to write about these black communities and I want to showcase these black communities in ways that other travel resources don't. Beautiful. So that's why I named it Afro Buenaventura. Well, I think it's inspired, especially since, you know, Buenaventura means kind of like good travels or bon voyage almost. Um, So, yeah, it's... And that's the other thing, too. I mean, you've got these countries and places that have these very large, um, very potent black communities, and they siphon off the culture. You know, obviously, Buenaventura, well, a lot of people don't know this, um, but Cali is the center of salsa in Colombia. It's like the huge salsa scene there, dancing and music. This is obvious. This this has everything to do with the fact that you've got a very large contingent of Afro-Colombians in the region. 
Um, and so it, but people don't say don't go to Cali. They say go to Cali and experience the the salsa and the, the atmosphere, blah blah blah. But they want to divorce it from its roots. Right. So you know, and you yep. you you tend to see this not just in Latin America. I mean, you see it in places like New Orleans. You see it in in the South in general. You see it in in New York and Chicago, where you know we claim certain aspects of the culture of a marginalized culture, but don't go to see the people who create that culture. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and so we're speaking about culture and, you know, the roots of the culture. When I got to this, this village uh, across this bay or whatever, it's like a two hour boat ride in this crazy small boat where I thought I was going to die. I was going to die. I really thought I was going to die. So this whim decision, whatever to the, Okay. This, this whim decision to go to Buenaventura to take a taxi down to the docks and get the last boat out left me. And two hours later, I was on this beach in this beach community where that very night they had all the uh, school age kids from the communities come together and sing and dance about black uh, being Afro uh, Colombian. Oh I was like, God, this man. is amazing because I hadn't planned this. Like I had an itinerary. Afro uh, Buenaventura was not on the itinerary. Going across on this crazy boat ride was not on the itinerary. And then I land and I put my stuff in a hotel, come back up to the community, and they're having a celebration about being black in Colombia. I was like, this is for me and something is telling me that this is exactly where I need to be and this is what I need to be talking about whenever I talk about travel. Oh, absolutely. So that was this epiphany moment that I was like, this is exactly the great travel that I want to create and it's happening to me. I was like overwhelmed with the the universe acknowledging that I was in the right place. Yes, yes, agreed, 100%, which means that this week um, you're heading down to the Brazilian consulate to get your visa, right? (laughs) Well, I actually actually enrolled in the 10-week Portuguese course, so we're about our fourth class. So I'm I'm inching my way towards that step. You know? Excellent. And I'm only saying that because like now I'm expecting this website to just expand <laughs> with information from all over the region. I mean, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited because I, I lived in Colombia for four years. I lived in Barranquilla for two and a half years in Bogota for a year and a half, um, which kind of split my time in Barranquilla. I started off in Barranquilla, went to Bogota and came back. Um, and Barranquilla, which is on the Caribbean coast, two hours from Cartagena, like there is a very strong African aspect to the culture, but it's very different from that of the Pacific coast of Colombia, which is has been more isolated, partially because of geography. I mean, Colombia's got lots of mountains um, that separate the parts of the country and the Pacific coast is not as accessible to the rest of the country as the Caribbean coast is. Um, at the same time, I didn't feel like I got the kind of Afro-Colombian experience that I would have gotten had I been living in Cali or go. I went there a couple of times, but I didn't spend as much time as I would have liked. The, the, in Latin America, there is such a heavy emphasis often on, oh, we're all mixed that I feel like part of that is served to silence people who are like proud of their African heritage. I agree. Yeah. I, I, I think that, you know, like again, the assimilation part, you know, you're supposed to buy into this more unified 
uh, understanding of who we are. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, understanding the key ingredients to that unification and that soup or that stew or whatever people want to call it is important as well. Um, I, right. mean, I see it here in the U.S. all the time. I'm like, you know, we can definitely be unified and all this stuff. But also there's value in me recognizing who I am. And you you also recognizing who I am, where I came from. I totally agree. And in Latin America, I, I totally see it, you know, where people want to just identify as Colombian, but they kind of in some ways are um, leaving their blackness to another space, in right, another space right. and well, just recognizing, you know, this approximation to whiteness. Ultimately. Well, I was going to say, I mean, they do identify as Colombian, but they're quick to point out which grandparent came from Germany which grandparent mm-hmm. came from Italy, which one came from Spain and all these other things. And yeah, I mean, we can go all day on the anti-blackness that is seen in cultures that extol their mixedness. Um, it, again, yeah. like you said, I mean, that is, it is beautiful to acknowledge, oh yeah, we are all humans and we, we bring everything to the table. But when it's at the expense of one or two particularly foundational ethnic groups or racial groups. Yep. So, yeah, I definitely invest, you know, I definitely want to understand more about that thought process. Uh, I think talking to folks about race when you're in a, in a community like that is very interesting. I've gotten folks tell me that there's race issues and there's problems and there are challenges and I have the same colored folks tell me that they are not. So it's really interesting to talk about those kind of issues with folks who experience them. Well, yeah, I mean, it definitely, I experienced many different, many varying opinions on the racism, the colorism, the classism, um, living in Latin America for eight years, like I did. And as a person who's got a more or less mixed phenotype, having people tell me that I wasn't black, having people tell me that I wasn't that black and thinking that that was a compliment Right. Um, you know, engaging with people who are different uh, in terms of like being much more obviously unmixed black, still saying, oh, well, there's no racism here. It's just the classism. But at the same time, this person is only eligible for service positions. Um, being a foreigner working in education and in media in places where I was the only person of African descent in these spaces and I was a foreigner. So like it doesn't even count. Because I'm not even like I'm not local. I'm not from the the local black population here, but I'm being held as an example of diversity in your office. Like, when you've got people, with, you know, the population of Afro descended people in places like Brazil is 50 percent and 51 percent in places like Colombia. It's in the, it's 40 percent. But I'm still the only black person that's teaching at this university or, or, or whatever else. So, you know, but as you know, I had a blog where I talked about all these issues ad nauseum and um, <laughs> I mean, it yes. wears you out at a certain point. I think. Yeah, it uh, absolutely. And so that brings me to a point where I wanted to talk about being black while traveling. I honestly, uh, so in Peace Corps, I saw how people, the local communities reacted to folks who were in Peace Corps who were white And then the people, you know, how the local communities reacted to people who were not white. And Mm -hmm. at one point, I think I was jealous about the way that folks really, you know, their jaws dropped and they fawned over these white Americans who fit the picture of what they'd seen on TV. And I was kind of uh, 
saddened about the way they were kind of not as excited about me being black or not fitting this image of an American that they had seen or become accustomed to. But I find value in it while traveling because often I can maybe blend in or not as not stand out as much. Oh, yes, sir. When I'm traveling, like, you know, I may not necessarily get the full white folks tax as, you know, some tourists would or I can maybe pretend like I don't exist and maybe I can be more of an observer because I'm not white or because I'm black. So I actually have found that I value that specifically traveling, traveling in Latin America. Now, I don't mean to say that in a way where it doesn't recognize that folks are maybe persecuted more or thought of in a, in a less uh, positive way in those communities. But being a black traveler, I think, has more advantages for me. Uh, than other people may recognize. No, I I know exactly what you mean. Like you said, that ability to kind of blend in, to shape shift, to have mm-hmm. people, yeah, to to not be necess- an automatic target. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also feel like, in a way, it allows you to connect more easily sometimes when people are yeah. a lot more open to bringing you around their family and 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 all these other things. And some of it does come from that kind of oh he's cool because he kind of like reminds mm-hmm. me of chris Ro- uh, chris tucker or whatever <laughs> like, mm-hmm. so yeah i i've experienced that and i know exactly what you mean and it is something that you can't really prepare people for they just have to go in and experience it themselves i feel yeah yep um so did you uh I, on some of your photographs you have locks um did you have mm-hmm. those when you were traveling in latin america initially um, so before I went to Peace Corps, I cut my locks off. Okay. Uh, a lot of Peace Corps has to do with kind of being accepted by the community. So they uh, actually recommend that if you have locks, you cut them off. Though I did uh, meet other Peace Corps volunteers who had locks. Uh, I just cut mine off. Well, Plus the maintenance where I was in Paraguay would be really kind of difficult. Okay. Understood. Understood. The reason I was asking was because there again we mentioned like a lack of nuance sometimes and you see that everywhere in the world you know people in the u.s can if they're from communities where they haven't had a lot of exposure to you know to different types of people can assume that a person who looks a certain way is from a completely different country than where they might be from including them being from america um and so just you being in certain places with locks I, I would assume that certain people think, oh, you're West Indian or you know, Jamaican kind of thing. Trinidad. Yes. yes. As opposed to not being drugs. American or that you sell drugs. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, so I, I do try. I have locks now. I've had them since 2011. So everywhere I've gone in the recent recent past, I've had locks. Um, and so a lot of people have questions about them. They're curious about them. Uh, there's always Rastafarians wherever I go and they always, you know, dap me up and call me brother or whatever. So okay. it's been all positive <laughs> though. I mean, there are some negative aspects with having locks in a lot of communities where people have locks. You're thought of as kind of like a hippie or a, a weed smoker or something like that. So there are some negative connotations about people that have locks, but I haven't really faced like severe issues with uh, how people perceive me with locks. Well, and definitely I do represent image of, of a person from America. Well, no, that's excellent. I'm glad you're saying that because I do feel like on, you know, some people, some people have asked me before they've traveled, you know, not necessarily about locks, but just I'm a black person. I'm going to a certain country. 
what's it like? Am I gonna is it, am I gonna suffer from the racism kind of thing? And I feel like, look, with everything that we've got going on in the history of the United States, you'll be fine everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you will be fine. You will be fine. <laughs> You're gonna be all right. Like that's my main. Yeah. Like, I keep telling people that. Because, yes, there are these issues. There are issues of misogyny. There are issues of homophobia. There are issues of ageism and of, you know, anti-Americanism. And I, obviously, I have listeners from many different parts of the world. Um, so it's not, you know, not, not just to say American, but whatever. I mean, there's going to be a reason to someone is going to have to dislike you. The fact that you aren't even from, you know, that particular town is enough sometimes or that particular neighborhood that still doesn't mean don't go absolutely i agree uh i mean it i also do my research about uh how people think about these certain ideas in those countries before i go i mean it's not going to deter me but it's going to make me more aware and able to maybe mitigate some of that just you know i think this awareness of how things are perceived in a specific culture is important to know when you travel you mean you read before you go someplace? You you like find Absolutely. a book? There um, are many people who don't. There are many people who don't, you know, and it's kind of curious that they don't. Um, I <laughs> not only read books about history of the place and the people in the place, but I read the State Department reports about the place in the mornings. And I don't take I don't read them to scare myself, but I I, I read them to understand how the U.S. views issues that are happening in the in the particular specific place and so i'm aware of what i may be uh coming in contact with it's just about awareness and i think when you're aware you can maybe be more free to be yourself as well uh, agreed a thousand percent man and i again i appreciate you bringing that up because often i get it people don't want to have to read and especially if they're getting ready to go on a vacation from having worked the whole year and they got their little two weeks they don't want to have homework but guys sometimes like you need to know what the situation is on the ground when you go someplace, even Paris, even New York, even just wherever, man. Yep. Speaking of read, um, <laughs> in June, I'm going to uh, to Mexico City for Mexico City Pride. Okay. Then I'm going over to the, uh, to the east coast of, of Mexico to Veracruz to visit some of the black communities there. And I, when I was in New York, I went to the Lapidus Center up at the Schomburg. Okay. They had a, a guy who, who had written a book. His name is David Weed. He was talking about blacks and, and Africans in Latin America, not as slaves, but actually as uh, settlers and independent folks who were free and creating communities, econo- economies, and contributing to those com- communities before necessarily slavery. Wow. That was a really interesting perspective about our existence in Latin American and Caribbean communities in a different context, in a totally different role than most folks would think about when they thought about those same places. Well, see, that's the thing, is that these kinds of stories are empowering. And one of the ways that you keep a particular group controlled is remove, you know, stories of empowerment from their local folklore. Yep. Well, Matt, how can people find out more about you and your travels? So folks can go to my website, AfroBuenaventura.com. They can also check me out on Facebook, AfroBuenaventura, on Twitter, um, and Instagram as well. So if you just type in AfroBuenaventura into Google, you should find all of those platforms there. Hey, thanks again, man, for coming on the show. I really appreciated it. 
Um, I'm sure our audience will find you to be informative and enlightening. So thank you, my brother. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, being such a beacon of uh, inspiration uh, for folks who are black and who want to travel and understand their role in the world and how to uh, interact with that world. So oh, thanks man. for having me. I appreciate it. Wow. Okay. I'm a beacon, huh? Man, I'm just trying to live <laughs> my life. <laughs> so audience, please, please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Fly Brother Radio Show. As Ronel mentioned before the break, you can find out more about Afro Buenaventura at AfroBuenaventura.com. That's A-F-R-O-B-U-E-N-A-V-E-N-T-U-R-A.com. And also on Facebook and Instagram at Afro Buenaventura. And at Twitter at Afro Buenaventura without the final A. You can also reach out to me directly at Ernest at FlyBrother.net or visit our website at FlyBrother.net. We also appreciate likes and follows on Facebook at Facebook.com slash FlyBrotherFly and on Instagram at FlyBrother. Please share any questions, content, or stories that helps me help others thrive. Lastly, if you do enjoy the FlyBrother radio show, please rate, subscribe, and even sign up to make a monthly contribution to keep FlyBrother in the air and on the air. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Fly Brother Radio Show. Have a phenomenal weekend and an amazing week. Ciao, ciao.